2: Welcome to this CR podcast on Russia, Ukraine, and the West. I'm Charles Grant, the CR's director. I'm here today with two experts. One is my colleague Ian Bond, who's director of foreign policy at the CR. The other is Arisia Lutsovich, who runs the Ukraine program at Chatham House. Welcome to both of you. Hi, Charles.
1: Good to be with you.
2: Well, nice to have you both. Well, um, it's, it's seven years since Russia illegally annexed Crimea and invaded parts of eastern Ukraine. And I don't think... I can remember relations between Russia and the West being so bad since the Soviet Union collapsed. But the immediate problem is there are, according to the Ukrainian government, 120,000 Russian troops massed near the borders of Ukraine. We've seen the Czechs expelling Russian diplomats because two of them are being accused of being responsible for an ammunition dump blowing up in in the Czech Republic in 2014. They happen to be the same two individuals who appear to have been responsible for the Skripal attacks in Salisbury in the UK. Um, and we've seen Russia Russian diplomats being expelled by the US because of election interference and cyber hacking. And Russia has uh, also expelled a number of American diplomats. So relations are really very, very bad indeed. And nobody quite knows what's, what is going on on the borders of Ukraine and what Russia is playing at. So, Ian, you recently published a, a CR Insight on relationship between Russia and Ukraine and the West. What what, what do you think Putin is trying to do at the moment? What what, what is Putin aiming to achieve? Well, possibly
0: even Putin doesn't quite know the answer to that. But I I think there there are three plausible explanations. I mean, one is that he is just trying to put uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine in his place and remind him of how vulnerable the, the country is. Um, and, you know, that is the sort of thing that um, that Putin likes to do is to um, to get his adversaries and to uh, remind them who's boss. Uh, a second possibility is that this is uh, about uh, putting pressure on the the West, uh, either to put pressure on the Ukrainians to make concessions in the completely stalled peace process Um in relation to the conflict in, uh, in Eastern Ukraine. So you've got the French and Germans who are the mediators in that process. And um, nothing would please Putin more than for them to be the ones leaning on Ukraine to make concessions that would leave it in a, a weaker position. Um, and of course, he has a new US president in the form of Joe Biden. Uh, It's quite attractive to put Biden on the the back foot to put him under some pressure and to see uh, how he differs, if at all, from Trump in the way that he responds. Or, and this is the most worrying possibility, this really could be a preparation for an invasion of of Ukraine. And certainly, if one looks at some of the propaganda that's been in the Russian media, uh, which is clearly designed to make Russians hate Ukrainians, and also for an external audience to make them feel that Ukraine isn't worth defending, then that's quite worrying because it's the sort of thing we saw before the uh, intervention in in 2014. But I think the background to all of this is that Putin is not actually doing as well as he would like to on the the domestic front. Russia's had a very bad pandemic in terms of the numbers of excess deaths. I mean, the, the Russian government has tried to conceal the number of deaths from COVID-19. But the excess death rate is very, very high. The economy is faltering. The IMF is, for, is, is forecasting very low growth for the next two or three years. Um, that's not good news for, for Putin. And the amount of domestic opposition is growing. Um, he's got Alexei Navalny, the, the main opposition figure in jail, Um, but Navalny's supporters came out on the streets at the end of January in greater numbers than had been seen for about a decade. And I believe they're out on the streets in a number of Russian cities again, literally today as we're speaking. So um, I think Putin faces some domestic challenges, and he may see a bit of foreign trouble, not necessarily an an adventure in the form of, of an invasion, but just enough to be useful to him domestically, to stir up people's feelings of patriotism.
2: We should say that we're talking on the 21st of April, as we referred to today and to yesterday. So uh, events may or may not move on quite rapidly from today's conversation. Orissia, uh, do, do people in Ukraine uh, share that concern that maybe Russia is actually not just bluffing and not just trying to put pressure on people that actually could consider significant military action against Ukraine? How do people in Ukraine see the current situation and and how worried are they?
1: Ukraine has been now for over seven years in this war of attrition that Russia is waging. And of course, there's a lot of anxiety, exhaustion and the high price that Ukrainian society is paying for defending its sovereign right to decide its future. You know, our listeners may know that over 15,000 people has died, more than a million displaced, people lost businesses. They had to leave annexed Crimea. They had to flee from, you know, Russian proxy militia in Donbas that were, you know, putting people in underground jails. So there's a lot of suffering, and you know, you you added. Another layer of COVID, you know, I mean, I was in Ukraine recently and one uh, friend told, we've just been been burying soldiers, but now we are burying the mothers of soldiers. So, you know, Ukrainian society pays high price for this. And this is what is often missing from the headlines, families, children affected by war, or, you know, the almost 200,000 young adults who are growing already, you know, in this military conflict all the time. But if you look at the, you know, public opinion poll about how Russia is seen and how the West is seen, you know, overwhelmingly, of course, Russia is seen as an aggressor. There is not ambiguity about the fact that Russia is attacking Ukraine, that Ukraine is defending its sovereign choice. And, you know, there's the, I use the word war because it comes to mind this quote by Chesterton who said that The best way, war is not the best way of settling differences. It is the only way of preventing their being settled for you. And this is exactly what Russia is trying to do. Russia is trying to decide how Ukraine will build or will be permitted to build its relationship with the European Union, with United States, with NATO. And this is why we have this war, because Ukrainians don't want Russia to settle this for them. Uh, So you have quite, you know, a strong rally, you know, quite a strong wave of patriotism of Ukrainians willing to defend the state. Uh, and Russia is unfortunately viewed as this unfriendly state. Only 10% of Ukrainians see Russia as, you know, as a friendly neighbor state. And it's interesting that it even in annexed Crimea, and we've had an, an event at Chatham House, people can also watch it about life in the annexed Crimea. To a certain degree, some people feel betrayed because, you know, because of the disappointment, because now there's less freedom than there was during Ukraine. You know, Ukraine was maybe disarray, but this disarray allowed people to, you know, to, to be free. Also, uh, the expansion of the Black Sea Fleet, especially in Sevastopol, if you if you look at it, uh, there are secret uh, Russian military orders that assign land to the Black Sea Fleet, and people, residents, don't know where this land is, and they could be evicted from their houses and dachas overnight without any explanations. And in the occupied DNR, we have martial law. So what happens is that the rest of Ukraine, watching what is happening in the occupied Donbas and in the next Crimea, they don't want uh, this to spread further on to the rest of Ukrainian territory. And they feel like the West should be Ukraine's ally because Ukraine is defending you know, these values. Uh, and the, the support uh, for U.S. involvement, Germans involvement, French involvement, UK involvement is quite high. Ukraine is reaching out to these uh, nations for for reassurances and support.
2: That's right. Well, uh, you've talked about the West, Arisia, but Ian, uh, what are the Western countries doing to try and deter Russia from taking military action in Ukraine, or can they do very much? I mean, because nobody in the West is talking about using military force to defend Ukraine. There's no security guarantee of Ukraine. So what, what, if anything, can the Western countries do and what what are they doing? Are are they doing enough, do you think?
0: I think there's quite a lot that they can do, but they're not doing enough. Um, I've lost count of the number of Western leaders who, in the last few weeks, have said that they're giving Ukraine their unwavering support. Uh, It's as though they've all received a text message that says you must be unwavering. Um, But uh, the question is, how do you define unwavering support? And the answer is um, there's been a certain amount of wavering, even from the US. Uh, Joe Biden had originally intended to send a couple of warships into the Black Sea. The Russians said, you know, that would be a very bad idea. And he then decided that perhaps it wasn't such a good idea after all. And I think that that was a mistake on his part. Um, It it has not um, brought any concessions from the Russian side, but it has been a sign of weakness on on the Western side. But there's been a lot of rhetorical reassurance. There have been some good steps. There have been some um, high level visits to Kiev. Uh, and even to the areas farther east, which I think is very good, and I I would encourage more of that. Um, And Zelensky himself has been to to Paris. That's good. The Americans have actually supplied some military equipment. We don't know precisely what, but we know that there have been a couple of flights and um, also a a delivery by sea, um, and that's a positive where i think there is a uh, there is a gap at the moment is in terms of consequences for russia and clarity about what those consequences might be and i think it really would be helpful if the the eu and the us and the uk and canada and other friends of ukraine said very very clearly to putin that if russia again crosses the border and uh, goes further into Ukraine, then there will be rapid, coordinated sanctions directed at the parts of the Russian economy that prop up the whole structure of Putin's regime, and that's primarily the oil and gas sector. But it seems to me that at the moment we haven't we haven't reached a level of response from the West that is really going to get Putin's attention.
2: Right, Aricia, is there a connection between? the pressure we're seeing from Russia at the moment and what's been going on inside Ukraine. You follow Ukrainian politics quite closely. In recent months, we've seen President Zelensky move against oligarchs like Viktor Medvedchuk, who are thought to be sympathetic to Putin. We've seen him trying to replace some of the judges in the top courts in Ukraine that are thought to be corrupt or or dodgy in certain respects. Is, Is Russia responding to this, these actions by Zelensky to, to sort of warn him not to go, not to go too far—is there a connection? Do you think
1: there is a certain connection? I think this military buildup serves several purposes, and I think Ian described it quite well at the beginning. Of course, one of them is to retaliate against these actions that Zelensky—quite bold action, actually surprising actions that few in Ukraine expected Zelensky to. Um, to, uh, to act upon. And, and I think that uh, it kind of signifies a certain end of an era of uh, Zelensky's core, if you want the optimism that they, he will be able to reach a deal with Putin. And if only you really engage in a dialogue with Russia that you can uh, stop the suffering that I've described, that you know, Zelensky himself comes from the east of Ukraine. He shares. He's quite empathetic as a person, I think, to to all this suffering. Uh, but um, obviously, over time, and we are talking about now mid term of his presidency, uh, he uh, hit the wall with Minsk with all his attempts to um, compromise. You know, and he took some unpopular decisions, including inside Ukraine, such as you know withdrawal of some of Ukraine's positions from the east, exchange of some of the prisoners that were you know under Ukrainian criminal investigations and some even witnesses of MH17, he gave them to you know back to Russia uh, in exchange of Ukrainian prisoners. But obviously uh, it was not uh, reaching any um, uh, result in, in peacekeeping because, exactly the Minsk, the way Russia interprets this is here to uh, stall and is to have leverage over Ukraine. So Medvedchuk is one of the Russian assets. He is uh, almost a relative to Putin through the uh, uh, Putin being godfather of his child. He actually makes quite a lot of money in Russia. His assets are estimated at around 2.5 billion around the oil refinery business. And he uses these financial uh, you know, flows from Russia to finance uh, inside Ukraine, TV ch- channels that dis- uh, spread very toxic disinformation, including what President Zelensky about IMF, uh, about the role of the West. Um, so um, I think um, it, in a way Zelensky decided to uh, curb this influence, but also he imposed sanctions on some Russian companies, 11 Russian companies were sanctioned, including one large company uh, in the aviation, Volga Dnepr, that is servicing four large Ruslan airplanes, uh, including Rostotrudnichespa, which is a Russian humanitarian uh, assistance agency that is seen uh, as spreading also Russian influence uh, uh, more on the geopolitical spectrum rather than humanitarian. Uh, some of four Russian companies that are working in their next Crimea. So um, it's a new era in the bilateral relationship. Uh, Zelensky was and he is preparing the country also that the country will have to pay the pay the price if it wants to limit Russian influence and uh, it's in a way is quite popular decision among Ukrainians from sanctioning of these disinformation channels to sanctioning directly Medvedchuk.
2: I wonder if we shouldn't just acknowledge that the Minsk the Minsk agreements are kind of null and void and should be disregarded now because on both sides Russia really as far as one can tell has very little intention of, of achieving a peace settlement in Ukraine. It rather suits Russia to keep Ukraine as a running sore that it can Putin can raise the temperature or lower it when it suits him, it annoys annoys the West and distracts people. So Russia doesn't really want to deal in Ukraine. And also, maybe unfair to the Ukrainian side, but I think the scene from certainly Paris and Berlin, the Ukrainians don't really want to want to implement the Minsk Accords either, because that would mean handing, at least by some interpretations, handing back uh, an extreme amount of autonomy to the Donetsk and Lugansk parts of Ukraine and releasing lots of more prisoners and so on. So which, which would be, be very unpopular for Zelensky to do so. Though maybe the Ukrainians don't really want to implement the cause either. So should we should we just forget about Minsk and think of some other way forward? Or was am I being too pessimistic? But both of you can answer that question. Perhaps perhaps eurisia first.
1: Well, I think the problem is not with Minsk accords, although there are some flaws in them. The problem is with Russia's attitude towards this accord, an existential problem we have with Russia not accepting an independent democratic Ukraine and its border. So it uses its instrumentalizers as it does with history, as it does with information. The same it does with diplomatic treaties such as Minsk agreement to basically not, uh, because Ukraine views these agreements as the way to reclaim control over its Eastern border while Russia interprets them as the way to get control over Ukraine's Western border. And this is the problem. and And I think, in scrapping it, it wouldn't change much, you know, in the way that sanctions are linked to Minsk agreements. So I, I would not be in favor of saying let's scrap uh, uh, these agreements, because in a the way they are so far uh, allowing as for a certain leverage, for a certain uh, cost to be imposed on Russia. And I also, I think over time, and and why I think Putin lost his nerve and started also this military buildup because he saw that Ukrainian, French, and German position was trying, you know, to, to be, was becoming closer, and Ukraine's allies in Normandy format were taking Ukraine's interpretation of these agreements in defending Ukraine's sovereignty. So you know, if you want to say the the silver lining of the Minsk agreements was that Ukraine managed in a way, build this alliance and explain its position to uh, France and Germany as to why Ukraine's interpretation of these agreements makes sense rather than Russian, which is here to wreck the country using Minsk agreements.
2: Ian, do you have anything to add
0: to that? I mean, I, I agree with that. I think it would be a mistake for Ukraine to... Uh, to denounce the Minsk agreements, even though I don't think the Minsk agreements as written could ever be or have been implemented. I mean, they're they're written in a very confusing and in some places self-contradictory way. Um, But just in terms of the politics of it, it's much better for Ukraine to keep saying um, on the international stage, and particularly to France and Germany, Look, you know, we are doing our best to implement these unimplementable agreements, um, and putting the onus on on Russia as well. If if Ukraine walks away from the agreements, then I think that enables the Russians to say, "Well, look, you know, you can't trust these Ukrainians. They they're backing out of uh, freely entered into commitments." Uh, So, uh, you know, in a sense, it suits both sides for the Minsk agreements to remain in force, but not to be implemented.
2: Right. Okay. Finally, let's let's just have a brief word about NATO. Uh, Arisa, why has uh, why has Mr. Zelensky in in Kiev started talking about NATO membership when that obviously is going to provoke the Russians? And clearly a lot of Western countries don't actually want Ukraine to join NATO anytime soon. So what's what's going on there?
1: well i think russia doesn't need much provoking from outside it seems like it's provoking itself on this perpetual self-provocation momentum which you know to to a certain degree is driven by internal politics uh, upcoming duma elections but you know it, it's interesting that it it indeed became a very prominent political rhetoric uh, but it started from Biden's uh, taking office as the president of the United States in that famous interview where President Zelensky appealed to uh, President Biden, saying, "Why aren't we members yet? And and we would like to we like to join the alliance." So um, it also actually fits the the general mood inside Ukraine, where support for NATO membership under current, uh, as you can imagine, security predicament of Ukraine is increasing more than forty around 50%, I would say, support NATO, of course, more in the western part, in the center, to a lesser degree in the east, but the idea of NATO membership is popular, but also, you know, what was happening, is so to say, under the surface, before Zelensky was very vocal about getting NATO membership, since the annexation of Crimea, NATO became, you know, an uh, increasingly uh, supportive of Ukraine's uh, defenses. And uh, it has started by awarding additional trust funds to Ukraine to train and provide assistance to Ukrainian armed forces. And then in 2019, uh, President Poroshenko included under his initiative in Ukraine's constitution, and it was voted by Ukrainian parliament to include in the constitution Ukraine's aspiration for NATO and EU membership. A new national security strategy already under Zelensky that was approved in um, March last year included specifically again NATO membership as a goal. And finally, NATO uh, gave Ukraine enhanced opportunity partnership in June of last year. So you see, this is a gradual process that is quite strategic. It's not some kind of um, whim of the day of President Zelensky to speak of NATO membership. It's Ukraine's strategic objective. I mean, of course, I guess the rhetorically and politically he's toning it up to also send messages to to Russia that perhaps, um, you know, that this is a real objective and that uh, Ukraine uh, in a way is building this coalition for this decision. There will be a NATO summit uh, this year that may review uh, membership action plan, may not. But uh, I think that uh, perhaps In Kiev, they are thinking that this could be put on the table, taken off the table, depending on what Russia does and how it behaves. And and I think that could be one of the calculus why right now, uh, especially with new Biden administration that clearly defies Russia as a threat in its own um, foreign policy um, analysis, this membership was was again kind of dialed up, an idea of the membership.
2: Well, some people in Western Europe, rightly or wrongly, have argued that Putin would have left Ukraine alone if it wasn't for the prospect of it joining NATO. Ian, was it a mistake for NATO in 2008 at that famous Bucharest summit to promise Georgia and Ukraine membership of NATO without giving them a membership action plan? That was a kind of messy fudge that agreed at that summit. But would Putin have done what he did anyway, whatever whatever people said about Ukraine and NATO?
0: Yeah, it it was a mistake um, not to offer membership but to offer membership without any timetable or route to to achieving it. Um, That simply left Georgia and Ukraine more exposed to Russia without providing them with any additional security guarantees. But it's also a mistake to think that not offering NATO membership would have meant that Ukraine would have been left in peace. Putin has repeatedly made clear that he doesn't see countries like Ukraine and Belarus as being fully sovereign. Um, you'll remember because you were you asked the question um, that uh, at uh, the Valdai Forum in 2013, Putin made this statement about um, Ukrainians and Russians being one people, um, and I think he genuinely thinks that it is artificial that there is a border between the two and he wants the countries of the former soviet union but especially the slavic countries of the former soviet union to be very firmly inside russia's sphere of influence regardless of what their populations want so you know my view is that nato should have acted more quickly and decisively in 2008 Uh, And its it's indecisiveness has made things worse. The problem now is that there is still no consensus on offering Ukraine a a membership action plan, still less membership. Uh, And so what we have is this process whereby every time there is a summit or every time there is some new pressure on Ukraine, the alliance has to come up with some new hitherto unknown formula for explaining how Ukraine is getting closer to NATO without ever getting close to getting in. Yes. Um, and, you know, it seems to me that at some point, the alliance has to grasp the nettle. I think the final thing I'd say on that is that I think we also make a bit too much, um, give too much totemic importance to the idea of the NATO security guarantee. Because NATO is not or or NATO members are not obliged to go to the help of Ukraine if it's attacked. It doesn't mean that they're obliged not to. And I think there is more scope for coalitions of the willing uh, for countries like Poland and Lithuania and the other Baltic states who really feel strongly about the security of Ukraine to do more to step up their own levels of support for Ukraine's um, defence forces and so on, and the UK should be in that category. Uh, we're we're sending forces to Ukraine later this year for exercises. Uh, there is no reason why we can't step up our um, our defence support to um, to Ukraine in current circumstances.
2: Yes, reinforcing your point, Ian, that it wasn't NATO that provoked Russia to intervene in Ukraine in 2014. I really, it was it was all about about the. The deep comprehensive free trade agreement that the mm-hmm. EU was negotiated, the part of the association agreement. Putin was very worried about Ukraine having a deep deep and comprehensive trade agreement with the EU because that would make it difficult for Ukraine or impossible in fact for Ukraine to join the what is now the Eurasian Economic Union. So it was actually the EU that seemed to provoke uh, Putin then rather than NATO itself. And, and, and,
1: and Charles if I may just also mm-hmm. a footnote on that, at the time when Putin attacked Ukraine it had a non-block status actually in its constitution mm-hmm. In, in, to enshrine, you know, Ukraine's non-alignment, and uh, Russia and Ukraine had a deal for the Russian Black Sea fleet to be located in, a, in Sevastopol till 2042. So, does Putin really need any pretext to do what he does? I would argue, no.
2: Yeah, but just just to just to to end on a word about the EU. I mean, I, ever since EU imposed those rather strong sanctions on Russia after the EU events of 2014. Um, I mean, the the striking thing to me is the EU has maintained those sanctions, despite the fact they require unanimity, because actually we all know that about a third or a half of the member states don't really want those sanctions. It's not just the Italians, the Greeks, the Bulgarians, the Spanish, the Portuguese, even the Finns. You can can choose your your country. uh, There's an awful lot of them are really uncomfortable with those sanctions. Yet They're maintained. Because Putin does, doesn't give those opposed to the sanctions There's a good, good, good reason to argue against them. I mean, the, the astonishing result of Putin's behaviour, particularly in the last year or two, is to unify the Europeans. It's very hard for Hungary to try and block the renewal of sanctions on on Russia because of Ukraine, given, given Russia's extraordinary behaviour. So I just think that it's, for for, right, for whether it's deliberately or not, probably not deliberately, Putin is actually helping to unify the Europeans in the way they handle Russia. To conclude, both, final question for both of you. Do you see any chance of... Uh, any improvement in relations between Russia and Ukraine or more generally between Russia and the West? Uh, Firstly, perhaps uh, Ian, and then Orissia can finish. Uh, I'm pessimistic. Uh, Putin thinks very much
0: in zero-sum terms. He's just changed the Russian constitution last year so that um, if he wants to, he can stay, and if he survives that long, he can stay in office until 2036 his his way of thinking about the world is not going to change. He thinks the world is made up of winners and losers. And if the West is winning, then Russia is losing and vice versa. He does not really believe in the concept of win-win solutions. And I think Western leaders just have to, have to accept that that's the way things are uh, and manage their way around um, that way of thinking and make sure that if it is a zero-sum game, they're not on the losing side.
2: Arisia.
1: Well, I must say, unfortunately, you know, it breaks my heart to think that Ukraine is in, in it for a long haul. Uh, having such a neighbor as, as Putin's Russia, and, and I'm specifically emphasizing Putin's Russia, because I think... Uh, you know, despite the war, there are still many Ukrainians who have much better attitudes towards Russia than Russians towards Ukrainians, because Russians have been so viciously brainwashed against Ukraine over these, over these almost a decade soon. So uh, I I, um, I would say that what is also quite disturbing is the fact that. Putin made his presidency and his identity on this anti Western, anti like the opposition that he's always trying to, uh, to um, inject into a Russia, fortress needing itself to defend and rally around the flag against this encroachment of the West. So, I don't see how this is going to change anytime soon. And I think our best strategy is to see how we can mitigate the risks, of course. And Ukraine is in. in you know, in the immediate risk zone, being a neighbor of Russia and Russia having such existential, you know, fears of independent Ukraine as we've spoken and, and building Ukraine's resilience but also thinking about the wider Black Sea. We didn't have much time to discuss all the threats that you know, right now we face in the Black Sea and that it projects towards Mediterranean. And this is where the West, United States, EU has no strategy, honestly. And, and seeing how Ukraine uh, and the region is a core interest. I think we need more discussion of why it is a core interest and what can we jointly as a collective West do to protect this region uh, having such a disruptive neighbor as Russia.
2: Well, let's hope that Western leaders are giving private messages to Mr Putin that any military intervention in Ukraine would have very serious consequences of the sort we've discussed earlier. Let, let's hope that Western leaders can create an incentive structure to, to dissuade Mr Putin from doing anything very foolish that would be bad for the West, bad for Ukraine, and very bad for Russia too. Anyway, thank you both uh, uh, Arisia and Ian for this uh, for stimulating discussion. And uh, hope to see you both again soon in another post-CR podcast. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Charles. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or
0: want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER
1: underscore
2: EU.